Hello, everybody. Chris Martinson here. And today we're going to be talking about finance and economics as part of Finance U. Remember, anything that you see in this video and all resources available at our websites or affiliated websites are not intended as or construed as financial advice. This is for educational purposes. Remember, if you have a financial decision, please consult a financial professional. We are not attorneys. We're not CPAs. We are not financial managers. As well, we do our best to be accurate and everything we represent is as accurate as we know it to be. Now, let's turn to our program. Welcome to this uh, Finance University. What is it today? It is the 12th of October. Again, back here with Paul Kiker of Kiker Wealth Management. Paul, so good to be talking with you today. Great to be talking with you again as well. Yeah, so, hey, let's start here. Um, I think people need to know about this. A lot of stuff going on. Uh, the inflation yeah. just came in a little hotter than expected today. I want to talk about that. Um, I, I'm a little disappointed again with you with U.S. markets, or actually, it's global markets now, where war is good for markets. Uh, you know, post this conflict, stocks are up, bonds are up, oil is down. Like everything you would say, that doesn't make sense, but of course, it does when you live in a world where the authorities feel like they have to massage every moment so that the markets don't send the wrong signal. Yes. Like what that that people dying is is not to be cheered is that the wrong signal i don't get it it's bothered me ever since you know desert storm one but it's a thing i'm just observing it at this point in time but it, it feels gross to me editorially that's where i sit on that it does and especially considering the potential risks that could spiral out of control uh in the region you know there's i mean you could easily end up in a global conflict really quickly based on what happens there in the middle east and the markets are just you know, it's like I was kind of sitting there and we've been talking about it the past couple of days, you know, what what is the basis for the market moving, right? You blow things up, you build new things. I can get that a little bit, but, you know, I think it really boils down to the fact that investors have been so trained that the Fed's going to save the day and step in and lower rates that, that everybody's concerned about rates being this high. They know we can't handle it from a debt level standpoint in the United States, so I think the hope, like Pavlov's dog, has been, oh, great, the war is going to cause the Fed to capitulate. They're going to turn around and drop rates a lot lower, and it's going to be markets, you know, rising into oblivion in the future again. And, of course, you know, we've had three years now of a down bond market, you know, and that lower rates could potentially help um, the balance sheets of banks and pension funds. And so, you know, I don't know. It's it's There was a time in the past when, the Fed would surprise the markets with the intervention. I remember, you know, 2013 and 2010, and now it's become an expectation and the market's trying to run this. So maybe that's it, but I don't know. I mean, that's, you know, I was on the investment committee yesterday and I said, okay, great. You know, there's, there's mass terrorist event murdering of innocent um, individuals and civilians and the market's going to rejoice by going up, you know, um, the, the world we live in today, unfortunately. I know, I know. So, so leaving that aside, let let's turn now real quickly to um. I want to share this, and let me see if I can get this up because because this is actually fairly big news as far as I'm concerned. Can you see this? Are we are are we square? I don't see it yet. Nope. Okay, I missed it somehow. Um. Oh, I forgot to hit the share button. Now we're good. There we go. <laughs> All right. <laughs> 
So uh, Genevieve Rock Dector, who is CFA, who I follow on Twitter, wrote, good morning. Uh, I would not want to be Jerome Powell today. CPI hits 3.7% in September versus 3.6. Expected. Not a big deal, right? Except that's the third straight month with inflation increasing year over year. And shelter was over 50% of the increase. Uh, it, 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 oof, right? Big deal. Um, yeah. Yeah, so so the whole story, the narrative they really want to be pressing is that inflation is going down, but this is the third month in a row where it's going the wrong direction. Not a lot, but the wrong direction. Uh, yeah. And so that actually has some pretty big impacts, doesn't it? It does. It should. The market seems to ignore it at this point. But, you know, when you when you look at the headline inflation number um, uh, higher again, and then you look at core, which core came in a little bit higher, um, or inline, but now that's, you know, a 0.3% month over month and year over year sliding down to 4.1, which was expected. Core's not been below 4% since May of 2021. So, you know, the question is, are, are they done at this point? Is the market correct and expecting lower rates? Because we've got some pressure in. Inflation has not dissipated as they anticipated that it would. Yeah, well, uh, I think this is a one of the big reactions right here in the two-year Treasury note. Um, we see here at, at that big red candle on the far right. That's the pop down this morning on the news. Uh, that was the first reaction. But you can see there from October 6th, that was the when the attack started in Israel. And you can see there was a little bit of a pop north there, but it, not a lot. It went from, I'll call that 101.2 to 101.5. I mean, it, not a big they didn't really rally much like I expected and that's all gone now. Um, and so we're only like 30 basis points away at this point from, you know, plumbing new lows on the price, but new highs on the yield. So the two-year note is clearly saying, Hey, we think there's more rate hikes coming here. That's how I read it. It does. I read it the same way. And especially how quick the reaction uh, was taken back from the, uh, from the events that took place in the Middle East, you know, it's now all of a sudden it's back to inflation, regardless of what's uh, concerned at higher rates, concern of inflation. Yep. Yep. And and same thing, 10-year, more of a muted thing. I mean, obviously it rallied fairly, get my little laser pointer out here, but it rallied fairly, you know, somewhat here, but not a lot. I mean, we're basically back to where we were. It's gone, really hasn't gone anywhere. That's not much of a rally on the fear trade. So I guess the world, you're right, the markets, the stocks and bonds and oil all just basically yawned at the most significant attack in Israel since the Yom Kippur War of 73. And mm -hmm. with, you know, Lindsey Graham blustering about maybe we should target Iranian refineries. I thought I thought the markets. Like you say, is that how do we interpret this, Paul? They're just. um, Well, they're just super complacent now, right? They are. Absolutely complacent. I mean, you're you're bouncing within some ranges, but but no clear breakout one way or another. Obviously, we're starting to see pressure on rates going higher, and mm -hmm. and um, you know, um, it, it, it's quite surprising, especially with what's taking place in the Middle East. And you would think that that um, there would be some concern over Lindsey Graham's, you know, a restriction in in the supply of oil at this point further exacerbates the inflation situation. And then you've got the fiscal backdrop there as well. So the markets are are just ignoring everything at this point. Maybe maybe with, with, with one slight exception, uh, and it's very slight. I don't know what to make of it yet. So here's these are indexes for today. Mm -hmm. um, 
looking at it over about a three day, this is an hourly. So those are hourly candles. So we got about three days on here, which, you know, so we see here that the Dow Jones, you know, adjust, I don't know what's happened since I, I snapped this picture. They may have all mysteriously and magically recovered. But here's this one thing as the Russell 2000, um, not happy. Uh, it's the least happy here with this idea of higher rates because that's the small cap companies. And boy, Paul, I've been hearing a lot about what's going on, like real carnage, like, like that corporate lending is really dried up, that they're having ac trouble accessing capital. Most of our zombie companies are contained in that sector. Those are the companies whose operating income can't even make the, the interest payments. So I'm not surprised to see that this is starting to show some real interest rate sensitivity here Yes. for, for these guys. Um, and editorially, again, look, DAX. Euro stocks, S and P, Dow, Nikkei, all kind of looking. I can't tell the difference anymore. But yeah. that's welcome, welcome to a broken market, courtesy of the Federal Reserve. And uh, yeah, good good luck with that. So, well, there was one difference in those charts. The Russell two thousand had, mm -hmm. had that resistance at the top level three times. It tried to hit that, and then we when we, when it broke down on that major move, it actually broke below that prior level of support. That is different from all of those other indexes, which is representative of the, the debt burden that those companies are carrying, the inflationary pressures that they're carrying. Um, and I think people are, at some point, maybe they're starting to worry about the zombie companies that are inside the Russell 2000. Well, I would hope, I mean, that's a great point. Yeah, it bumped its head up there against the 1800 level and um, and then broke down below that. But a lot of these companies, you know, Paul, they, they, they might have um, they might be facing two or more times higher interest costs when they roll their debt. They might be carrying debt at, I don't know, four. And now it's going to go to eight, you know, or something like that. That's a big deal when you were barely, barely pulling it off beforehand. I'm surprised it hasn't been more of an issue up to now. I don't honestly know what's holding the whole thing together at this stage. I really well, don't. You know, and I've wondered about that a lot. There are times when fundamentals matter, but with the Fed intervention that's taken place since 2008, not a lot makes sense to those of us who are trying to navigate this market in a risk-managed portfolio. You know, we're polarized in the markets as well as the half of the investors that are out there just, hey, I'm going to buy and hold. I'm going to throw it in there. I'm going to put my faith in the Federal Reserve that they're going to step in and bail us out. If they're not going to do it, we're going to get fiscal stimulus through the uh, politicians who are going to try to protect their, quote, legacy or, you know, protect the propaganda they're putting out about how great the economy is. And then you've got the other side that a lot doesn't make sense right now. Yes, we understand that there's a lag effect, but how are the markets? The markets are actually incredibly resilient. So when we get into situations like this, technical analysis, which we could relate that to uh, an instrument rating for a pilot, you know, commercial pilots have to be instrument rated because there's periods of time they're going to fly and limited to no visibility. So the only thing that they can rely upon is their instruments. So that's one of the things we're having to do in, in managing the portfolios right now is just I don't necessarily agree with it because at some point we're building for a major accident that I don't know that people are going to be able to sidestep. But the technicals of the market, the technical behavior of the market, if we relate that again to the to the instrument rated pilot, where we have no visibility and a lot doesn't make sense, are indicating that this market wants to go higher. Now, 
I think there's a lot being read into that because we still have major resistance. We've not broken out to new highs, but then you come into the end of the year. Even your buy and hold investors are starting to get frustrated right now, right? They're going, hey, we, we heard we were going to have a recession. The recession didn't take place. Our account balances are still below what they were two years ago. The 60-40 portfolio is still below where it was two years ago. And we're running into this fourth quarter. All that everybody's talking about out there, I think trying to force a self-fulfilling prophecy is the positive seasonality of the fourth quarter. So there's a lot of nervousness with investors out there that are going, hey, if we get through the end of October, like I've been talking about, you know, since uh, July, August, we're in that danger window and these markets continue to hold up. I think there's going to be the risk of a technical rally into the end of the year, which is going to make the average investor more complacent. But it doesn't mean that it's, you know, it may paper over these problems in the short term, but there's still deterioration taking place under the surface. And the lag effects are going to continue building to where you have this uh-oh moment that, you know, Wally Coyote, the market runs off the, the ledge and you see this massive drop uh, quickly. So this is a dangerous environment still. Even if the markets go up, it's still a dangerous environment under the surface. Well, the number one point of markets used to be to frustrate as many people as possible. Um, you know, that's that's kind of, you know, it doesn't have to do what you expect it to do. But even still, I think you're, you know, great points here. First, what you call positive, you know, seasonality, uh, I used to call the Santa Claus rally, right? It's yes. just, that's what, the, that's what they called it on Wall Street, right? You just, you rally out to the end of the year, everybody gets fat bonuses and then, oops, you know, the rug gets pulled in January or something. Right. I mean, that's what happened through, you know, the 2000 season up through 2007. The same thing. I mean, I've seen it over and over again. <clears throat> but uh, it, at this point, I think you know your other major point is that this is just what we got conditioned to. And it's I get it. Right. The Fed yeah. was there to bail us out in 2009. Um, they bailed us out in 11, 2011 and 2013. And then again in 2015, 16. Then they did it again in 2000. 19 remember remember 2019 like the feds unwinding its balance sheet and it was like this little hit it was like a little hiccup stocks were not going the right direction for a second and the fed dumped 400 billion dollars in october of or was it november of 2022 in in like a week yes 400 billion into the markets just so that it, they wouldn't like go down or send the wrong signals or something like that so i think it's fair to be for people to expect they'll just keep doing that. I mean, is there is there an alternative? Well, the alternative, I believe, well, years ago, the alternative would have been to just let the markets be free and, and burn out, let the recession come and burn out the dead wood, get rid of the zombie companies. We could have done that without systemic risk seven years ago. I think we could have done that without systemic risk in 2019 before we got into COVID. The problem is where we are right now. If we let that take place, you've got an unbelievable number of companies that have, you know, to try to compete. So one of the things that lower interest rates do is allows more competition into the marketplace, which drives down revenues. So, uh, and then there's always a solid company that's competing the right way. And then there's others trying to come in that are gambling, really. They're carrying too much debt. They're trying to, to, to get their share of the market. They're driving margins down. 
So you've got all these companies out there that have gotten into a situation where they've had to carry more debt because their profitability has been driven down because low interest rates have made credit easier, which has increased competition. So now you run a situation where you literally potentially run into a Great Depression if they do just let the system correct itself. So if they're if they're smart about it, they're trying to do it in a managed, destructive way so that we can get back to a more solid fundamental economically, fundamental basis, uh, foundation economically. So I, I don't know how they get out of the situation that they're in, because it's either massive deflation on one side and massive unemployment, or they print, 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 and we have massive inflation, which inflation is just absolutely devastating. I, I'm far more terrified of inflation than I am deflation. Well, let's look at all the pressures right now. So this is why I can't believe the complacency. But again, with whatever it is, 90% of the activity on the stock market, you know, contained by just a few high frequency firms, I think Citadel loans like 25% of all the trading volume. So it's just one firm controls a lot of the action, right? And then we have this crazy thing now where you've got um, all these leveraged things like we pay attention to the cash market. And that's what I just showed. I showed futures showing, you know, what's going to happen in the cash market. But honestly, the options market, you know, really, really drives this thing. I mean, there can be days when the fundamentals scream that that the opposite should be happening, but you get the opposite of that, right? Because, you know, there's there's just so much leveraged options, the zero day, you know, trading, you know, options, the zero, the, uh, zero DTEs that, that you've got, just all the puts and calls on and on and on, blah, blah, blah. For people who don't know what we're talking about, we're talking about derivative bets these are bets upon something else and the underlying is the something else but the bets are actually sometimes many times larger than the thing itself yes, <laughs> that's what you bet on you know well and one of the technical uh underlying events taking place in the market right now is the fact that ctas which are basically hedge funds that manage futures on a technical basis right mm -hmm. So they're extremely short the market right now. They were extremely short the market a couple of days ago. And what that does is basically force, because they're doing it through the options market, is force these dealers to buy to manage their risk. So it's it's forcing buyers in the market. And yeah, you've got all kinds of problems that are taking place, all kinds of potential issues under the market. But when these CTAs or managed future strategies have to start covering those shorts, I mean, I think one statement from Charlie McElliott at, at Nomura was saying that there's $283 billion that'll potentially be buying the market uh, on an uptake, if, uh, up market if we continue that over the next week or so. So you look at that, I mean, that's technical buying. These are, these are computer strategies. Most of them are are managed, you know, regardless of what the individuals think is going to happen. And that can provide fuel, maybe one last gasp in this market to give that positive seasonality into year end before the major pain comes in the spring. Now, that's not a prediction of what's going to happen, but it's one of the things when we're managing money and working with individual clients, that expectation management that you have to pay mm -hmm. attention. Mm -hmm. You don't want to yeah. be surprised dramatically from that, especially if you're an investor that's, that's, you know, taking a short position in the market right now, which is I'm not I'm not recommending by any means whatsoever. You have to pay attention to that or you can lose a lot of money very quickly. Yeah, well, let's look at um, I mean, those are great points. So there's all this. Listen, this is what happens after 20 years of just the Fed just flooding the markets with liquidity. 
it has to go out and find things to do. And if there's tons of liquidity, it finds all kinds of clever things to do. All right. these, you know. By the way, I, I'm of the opinion, Paul, that that they could have one of those fabled neutron bombs, right, go off and it, and it kills all, all living things, right? But if the computers are still on, they'll still be trading. Like, this would make a great little sci-fi movie. All the humans are dead and the computers are busy deciding that GM is a little over leveraged right now and, uh, and, and the options have to be closed out. So the stock price of GM is still trading along merrily because that's what the computers do. They're, they're, they run on some other, they just do what they do. I mean, we don't have like this whole idea. Like I hate this when they're like market watches, like, Oh, you know, traders reacted to, and they show a picture of actual guys in jackets staring at computer screens, you know, on the trading floor. I'm like, nah, that's, that wasn't, there's none of the, that doesn't happen anymore. They should no. show a rack of server lights, you know? That's, yeah, that's, that's right. the whole thing now. That's what they need to show in there for sure. Well, you know, a, another interesting statistic that came out today. So according to the Wall Street Journal, 80% of American households by income, bank deposit, and other liquid assets were lower in June of this year than they were in March of 2020 once adjusted for inflation. So, you know, one, one of the biggest concerns that I have is you've got investors that are complacent. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's say that's 20% of the population, okay? The other 80% of the population is also complacent because they're borrowing themselves into oblivion. They're utilizing, you know, credit card uh, debt levels are continuing to increase at the highest level of credit card debt that we've ever had. And, you know, and, and there's some other data, I can't remember who came out with, we, we have the highest interest uh, cost burden on households that we've ever seen throughout history. But consumer spending and discretionary spending is still continuing to go along just fine at this point. It's holding up very resilient. So I think there's a lot of complacency by the 80% of the population that that doesn't manage their finances as good as they should. And their expectation is, oh, don't worry about it. They'll postpone our student loans again, or the government will bail us out, or they'll drive interest rates to zero, and we'll be just fine with this mm-hmm. expectation that the government can can continue to do this. And at some point we're going to hit the wall. Who knows whether they kick it down the road, kick this can down the road another year or two years. I think there's a lot of incentive by this administration and those that are supporting this administration to try to keep these markets up into the 2024 election, you know, so they can claim, hey, we've done this. But if they are successful in kicking the can down the road that far, then the other side of that may be a completely different story. Well, sure. We're just building more and more potential energy. You know, we haven't had a the decent recession, but I, you know what? Um, I, I put this out recently that Jay Powell, chairman of the Federal Reserve, he's he's aged like a decade in the last couple of years, right? Like he's he's really carrying some pressure on this, and he's dead serious about this. He he's he's I take him at his word now, which is rare because I haven't taken a Federal Reserve chair at their word in in twenty thirty years. I think he's going to keep raising rates and hold them there till something breaks. And the longer this doesn't break, if I'm following you, the the idea is that, well, then maybe that leads to a worse break. You know, like a lot of potential energy in that in that system. It holds, it holds, it holds, and then it really snaps. Yes, yes. That's my concern, and that's what it looks like at this point, especially with the market's expectation. You know, let, let's just assume, and this is assumptions at this point, that when all this these horrific, horrific events took place in Israel, the market rallied on that. Okay. So like Pavlov's dog, the market's going, Oh, we're going to cut rates sooner rather than later. And I'm, I've seen 
all kinds of headlines across Twitter and other places. Oh, rates are going to be much lower in the next three to four months than what anybody's anticipating. The Fed's way ahead of the curve. They're making a big issue. But then we have these sticky inflation numbers come out today. So, yeah, those can change. Now, as a side fact, uh, one of the interesting notes was uh, auto coverage or motor vehicle insurance went up 18.9%. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, so... Um, so that does potentially lead to a breaking of the system. And, and I do as well take him at his word, because if you listen to what he's saying, not what people are speculating that he's going to do, he's saying that he's going to hold rates higher for longer. And yeah, they're pausing here because they understand that there's a lag effect in place. But I think, you know, on one hand, they're coming out saying there'll be another rate increase sooner rather than later. And then Janet Yellen comes out and says that's not going to be the case. So, um, but if you listen to what Jerome Powell's saying, the chair, he is saying that he's going to stay higher for longer. Well, and this is creating, you know, issues all around the world. One of the big ones I know we've talked about before, but Japan, um, Japan's in, in the news. They're, they're working, first off, they're selling treasuries because they're trying to defend their yen at about the 150 to the dollar mark. Good luck with that. It's proving to be very, very expensive, but they were just in the news. I, I'm sure you probably saw it, but they, they read this past weekend. The same weekend that Israel got attacked, they had upgraded their whole bank server software system. And as recently as yesterday, they weren't able to clear transactions. Like the whole system was like glitchy and failing to, to clear. So oh. when you have a giant banking system that can't clear transactions, it's a big deal. And so that was all over the, the news the last few days. That's a big deal. I don't know how I missed that, but I did I did miss that in the news. So Oh, they they kept it nice and quiet, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta you gotta go to those corners of twitter which you know anyway it came up on my screen and i, I chased it down it is true that it very glitchy and they didn't know what they were going to do like were they going to have to like roll all the software back or it was a big deal um but but those glitches are kind of things paul that i'm used to seeing at what we call market tops where you get those those weird little like is that a real print you know where, where all of a sudden like a, a a treasury will like bust like a huge move one way or the other and then they, they they fix it, you know, but you watch those glitches roll out. And um, and those are those are my unofficial warning sign that, that you're approaching that, you know, a transition point. There's a lot of warning signs that are taking place right now. You know, we've had the Mexican peso that has rallied dramatically against the dollar. That's been one of the most popular carry trades that have been out there. You've got Japanese that are having to sell treasuries going into one of the largest issuances that we've seen between now and the end of the year, which is, it, you know, can potentially put pressure on rates being higher. You know, and my big question is that the, the bond managers, I think, what is it you said, what's your statement about bond versus uh, stock managers? Uh, I can't remember it, but the bond managers are the they're smartest people in the room because their margin of profit is so much smaller than what it is on equity investors. Yeah. So, you know, we start seeing the 10-year really break out. We're starting to see the 20-year uh, yields go higher. What I mean is when we talk about breaking out and going higher, are the bond investors starting to say now, we don't have any confidence in, in the American political backdrop that they're not going to be so fiscally irresponsible that we end up in a major problem. And so there's no definitive proof that that's what the bond market's saying right now. But you've got these, you know, 
higher rates that continue to indicate that that's the case. And especially mm-hmm. you know, when the Fed's making the comment, well, the 10 year is kind of ju- doing our job for us right now because it's jumping dramatically. And I think 30 year mortgage rates are over 8% right now. So mm-hmm. uh, that's an indication. You can look at it one of two ways. I had, uh, I read one individual that made the comment, well, that's banks understanding that rates are going to be slammed back down to zero again. So they're trying to get 8%, eight and a quarter, eight and a half as quickly as they can right now so that they can build in some extra, you know, profit before rates go lower. I don't necessarily believe that that's the case because if you believe that interest rates are going to go a lot lower and you're competing against someone else, well, I'm going to, I'm going to do seven and a half percent. I'm going to garner all of that business because if I think rates are going to go to 4%, well, seven and a half is still great. I don't need to be pushing for eight. So my concern is, is that, that it's either a risk. The banks are seeing a major risk in real estate prices, you know, correcting somewhat, maybe not a 2008 type crisis, but if we drop back to 2019, what that's 30% below where we are right now, or or they're extremely concerned about the long-term foolish fiscal decisions that our politicians seem to be willing to undertake for short-term benefit. And they're recognizing that we need to be compensated higher because higher inflation for longer is a major concern. Well, it it is. And, um, you know, of all the warning signs, obviously we've got like student loan repayments fire up now, basically this month. Um, you know, as you'd mentioned, the consumer's pretty well tapped out. Uh, there's a variety of things going on, but but here's something I wanted to get your view on because to me, this there's a variety of things that um, really make my my eyebrows shoot up. You know, and this is one of them. So demand for corporate loans. So look at, I mean, this is pretty clear sign here, right? So anytime that this goes, this is the zero mark here. So corporate loans are, you know, advancing 20, 30, 40, 50% in this environment, but here they are coming down in 2000 and 2001 coming down to like minus 40, 50, 60%. When they come and cross the zero mark recession, when they come across the zero mark recession, right? So here's 2020, right? Which, you know, again, we had this little glitch in 2019, which, you know, I, I'm very suspicious of how the Fed behaved there. And uh, yeah. how much money they dumped in the market. So they got this little burst here after dumping 400 billion in, but, you know, came down, but this was all polluted then by all of that covered up with all of the COVID printing. So again, came up, but kind of a weak bounce, historically speaking. And now look at this, you got to go all the way back to 2008 to find demand for corporate loans at, at such a depressed level. Yes. And the trend was, you can see in that chart clearly that since around 2013, 14, the trend was down overall, but it had stabilized around that zero level from 2015 through 2017 mm-hmm. and started to work its way down outside of that burst of COVID. So, I mean, that's, you know, demand for corporate loans that tells you businesses are not expanding. They're not reinvesting. They may be reinvesting, but the, but they're not aggressively investing into future business capabilities. So that is recessionary. So, you know, the question is, are they focusing on financialization and, and recharacterization with inside the books more so than trying to expand their business models going forward? So that's that's another indication that the markets are absolutely ignoring what's taking place under the surface. And and the only thing that I can come back to is, is they, they have, like Pavlov's dog, this belief that the Fed's going to 
juice everything again, that they're just going to bail us out and, hey, 2020 work, they're just going to print money and give it to everybody. I, I, I don't think we can continue to do that. It, we should not continue to do that morally or ethically. But I think that's what well, the market... What's the argument? So first, two arguments that I, I need to explore. Maybe we could steel man this. Um, one is Timothy Geithner, you know, popularized this idea that there's systemically important banks, you know, SIBs, and and that there's, you know, that there's something would happen. So when we say there's a systemic risk, this is what they're so afraid of. Oh, my gosh, this could be a systemic risk. What does that actually mean? Do we know? What would happen if a systemic risk got realized what what's the fear do you think so the, i've never heard it spelled out <laughs> yeah that's a good question and 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 i was trying to think have they ever actually explained what that would be so from my perspective a systemic risk would be in a catastrophic collapse of the banking system so in other words you have a uh, and i think it may roll over into the derivatives industry quite frankly which is that that monster guillotine that's hanging over our entire system if that was to come mm -hmm. apart let's say JP Morgan Bank of America collapses, then you could have a, a shutdown in the banking system where, where you don't have enough FDIC deposits on hand to cover what, and I can't remember specifically what that is, but they've got pennies on the dollar compared to what the implied guarantee is. So that not only would you see the banking system collapse and mass layoffs, but you would also see the government having to step up and, and, you know, carry that implied backing of the FDIC institution. So a systemic collapse, in, in my opinion, would be akin to the Great Depression, because that's kind of what they talk about. We didn't print enough money to stave off the Great Depression, so we have to do that now. So that's my thought. What do you think, Chris? I, I don't know. I, I think it's, I, I bet you it hasn't been really well articulated. It's just sort of this cartoonish uh, you know, it ends up in Mad Max, like something happens, JP Morgan goes down. And next thing you know, there's people eating each other cannibalism in the streets. I don't know what they think, you know, because, because, you know, I was, I'm this guy back in 2009, I was kind of cheering. I'm like, Hey, if Citibank goes down, it goes down. Yeah. You know what, you know, the bondholders ought to get wiped out caveat emptor do not, you know, loan money or put your faith in a, in a company that's that poorly run in the future. It'd be a little painful for sure. There'd be a bunch of losses, but then guess what? better businesses would take that would fill that vacuum very quickly better run businesses so i actually think a little creative destruction is a good thing like i think capitalism really needs competition i think it's a good thing yes. but they seem to think it's a bad thing and i don't understand it and 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 their argument seems to be well you're kind of right but that was so 20 years ago we kind of let things get out of control to the point that where we can't risk that sort of creative destruction anymore because it would be too catastrophic but, you know, that's the, it's it's, you know, I hear this argument and, and I always stump people when they say, oh, but think think what would have happened if the Fed hadn't intervened in 2009. And I ask what? Yeah. And they're usually they're stumped. You know, <laughs> that's just they bought so, into the narrative that there's too big to fail. But isn't it convenient that too big to fail means that the biggest of the big get to run serious risks, reap the profits from that as long as it doesn't blow up. And when it blows up, they get bailed out. I mean, isn't this just the oldest bailout story in the book just with a new shiny wrapper of systemically important <laughs> wrapped around it that's how it feels to me but maybe i'm maybe i'm missing something you know maybe it would be mad max i don't i don't know though well I, you know they've not articulated well that it would be they've just put it out there and that you know systemic risk is something that 
pick, you know, gives every individual a different picture of what that may end up being. But I agree with you. So let's let's consider if if they let those banks collapse at this point. So we had a 60 to 75 percent drop in the market. You're going to have high unemployment. You're going to have the bankruptcy process that we would go through inside the United States. And these predatory lenders who are lending to the bottom 50% of the American populace and keeping them down because they're capitalizing on their lack of, of financial management, they're going to collapse. And guess what? They're out of the market. They're out of the market. If you backstop the FDIC system, that's less money in the, in, in the system. And I bet you you're not going to have uh, BlackRock and, and all these other institutions coming into communities and buying 168 houses, which are pricing out your average individual. So you'd have home prices come down. You would have salaries come down as well, but it would hit that reset button back to where you have the, the average individual takes a larger share of the wealth in the country. So if you go back prior to 1929, and I cannot remember these numbers, so for you viewers out there, I'm butchering this, I'm sure, but it's going to be pretty close. Close is relative. So I think it was something in 1929, 90% of the assets were owned by the top 10%. So not exact, but, but it gives you an idea. By 1933, 1934, because those too big to fail institutions lost their control of cornering that market and their monopolies, you had 90% of the wealth owned by 50% of the population, something like that. So that led to the 1940s and 1950s and 60s where you had a thriving middle class. So in my opinion, if you really look back historically, the worst outcome on the other side of the pain that we would endure would be a thriving middle class if we let these too big to fail institutions collapse. The problem is our politicians have a vested interest because guess what? Their funding comes from these too big to fail institutions. So their careers and their grip on power is going to be gone because the average individual is going to push them out and probably talk those individuals who have no desire to get into politics to step up to the plate because we need good leaders to get in, in control. So, yeah, I think we would be a lot better on the other side. Now, there would be tremendous amounts of pain in the short run. But here's the good thing about the United States. You don't go to jail for, for filing bankruptcy. There are other countries that if you can't pay your debts, you go to jail before you pay your debts. So our system does allow that burden to be removed from the individual in poor economic times. So as bad as it would be, It'd be nice if we could do it in a little bit of a controlled, destructive way. Um, but but that systemic collapse um, may just be the best thing that happened to the average American citizen. Well, so let's talk about the system for a second, because here's the second thing that bothers me. And this is just dead obvious. I, I don't have the chart with me right now, but I show it all the time. So hopefully people know what I'm talking about. It's a chart with just two lines on it. One is GDP of the United States. It's a line that goes like this. And then the second is total credit market debt, not unfunded liabilities, underfunded stuff, not Medicare, Medicaid, none of that, just debt. So that's corporate, state, household, federal, you know, debt. Um, that's a second line and it goes like this, right? And those two are growing apart. And so that's the system they're saying, oh, we have to preserve that system because otherwise this would be a systemic problem if we let that begin to correct. But we have a we have a math problem, Paul, where we, you can't, you just can't have your debts constantly compounding at twice the rate of your income. But that's the, the system that they're busy defending. And I just look at that and I go, 
oh, you know, this is going to hurt, but this is one of those rip the bandaid off moments because the longer we wait, my position is the worse that's going to be to the point where it might just, if you finally wait too long and it breaks of its own accord at some awkward time in the future, that could be sort of a lights out sort of a moment. That's what I worry about, you know, and then of course they'll probably ride in. That will be their, their reason for having a central bank digital currency. Good news, bad news, bad news. JP Morgan just folded. Good news. We secretly created a separate account for you. All your money is now over here in, in the in the Fed. JP Morgan went out of business, but your money is still, you know, alive and well, I guess. I, I don't know. But well, I, I would assume that that they're gonna take advantage of that opportunity when that day does come because one thing that you're you know, another way to phrase those two charts is it takes ever increasing amounts of debt for smaller and smaller increases in GDP. So have we reached the point now that we have ever increasing amount of debt just to maintain GDP? So, mm -hmm. but, the, but the bingo point is, is once that chaos un, unveils and the pain hits the American people for a short period of time, you know, oh, here's the central bank digital currency. And then my concern is we move into full modern monetary theory where they're like, oh, we'll give you a monthly income. And if you don't spend that income in 90 days, it goes away. Now, that does allow them to continue to, to, to keep their hands on the reins of power in a much greater way, because now we have no anonymity in our transactions that are out there. The government knows everything. And in real time, they can track exactly what consumers are spending. And in a corrupt system, those that are closer to the data source are going to be able to front run the investment news before they come out and, you know, further embolden the, the top half a percent. Well, and this is, of course, very frightening to, to a lot of us because um, I just got a call from Dane, who, who uh, works with Peak Prosperity a couple of weeks ago. And he said, hey, went down to my local coin shop where he, you know, buys some silver bullion from time to time. And the guy said, hey. We're kind of out of commission for now because we just got debanked. Just got a letter. Somebody, a bank they've been working with for decades said, you're no, you no longer have an account here. You know, you have 30 days to move it and you can't do anything in the meantime. Um, so so that's happening all the way at the coin shop level. We saw truckers and the truck movement in Canada. We saw people who just donated 25 bucks to that because they believed in the right of people to have their voices heard in an allegedly free society, get debanked, have their assets frozen. Um, there's been a fairly significant push for that in just this week in the context of the Israeli war and conflict and, and all that horrible stuff that's going on. I've seen people openly saying that people who express the wrong opinion about that ought to suffer the consequences for that. So we've got this really weird vibe now where people want to commingle your your point of view with whether or not you ought to be debanked in a society where Paul, I got to like that to me, that's that's as violent as anything you can do to somebody. If you said fundamentally, you like if so, if it, the system came along and said, Paul, we really don't like your your position on fly fishing. We've decided it's the worst thing ever, <clears throat> and you no longer can bank with any banks. Well, that's kind of a game over moment. I mean, it's very serious. I don't think we're treating this as seriously as as it actually is at this point. Um, you know, all things considered, because you can't you can't operate in this world of electronic, you know everything without uh having access to that system it's 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 bizarre to me that too that complacent is, about this that is absolutely terrifying that is terrifying because you know we and i can't think of the name of the individuals who was it nigel farage that is that who yeah, that he was got, yeah 
issue that he had that was debanked, but he was a public enough figure that he could bring it to the attention. But now you've got a small business that deals in precious metals that was was debanked. To me, that is one of the most terrifying situations that can take place because in a credit-based system, you can't go borrow enough money to, to you, you know, most businesses are going to have to borrow money to take undertake a business venture because, you know, there's just not enough profit in the system right now for people to accumulate with inflation eroding purchasing power to go pay cash to start a business unless they're, you know, heir to a trust fund or something of that nature. So it effectively cuts you completely out of the system. You're not going to be earning any interest where you are. You know, a lot of places aren't taking cash anymore. Um, more and more places aren't taking cash. So, and how can the government allow that to happen to an American citizen and an American business when they're propping up these institutions because they're too big to fail? I, 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 that doesn't make sense to me in any way whatsoever because the, the government is supposed to protect our freedom and protect that system. They should immediately decharter any bank that's willing to, to uh, deep ink uh, an individual unless it goes through a court of law and they're charged with fraud or some criminal activity and then the business goes away so they're effectively debanked. That's insane. It is. It, it really is. Well, um, I've got to move on because I've got another uh, uh, podcast coming up shortly here. So, Paul, uh, again, for everybody listening, this is Paul Kiker of Kiker Wealth Management, uh, Peak Financial Investing's endorsed financial advisor. I, Paul, uh, it, every time I hear from somebody who started to work with you, I just get nothing but glowing reviews. That is just the number one thing I want to hear. Uh, you, you just do a wonderful job at helping people feel heard, helping them really think through their financial situation, taking a really calm, risk-balanced approach with a lot of experience. So Thank you for doing that, because it feels really good to me to be able to send people to somebody uh, who, who's got that experience and, and um, well, the, those people skills. Well, thank you, Chris. It's our honor. You know, I, I have thoroughly enjoyed talking to individuals, helping them develop a plan, uh, prepare for the future. You know, we, we don't know what's going to happen, but we do have the ability to adapt and put plans in place so that if we cross certain lines, this is the decision that we make, need to make now. And that's provided a lot of comfort to the individuals that we talked to. And I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I, you know, to be able to have the opportunity to help people in this period of time and to help point them in the right direction and, and help them to ask the questions that they don't even know to ask so that they're better prepared. And it's all about making sure that each person that we talk to is mentally prepared, understands what's taking place, has a plan in place so that they're, Ideally, no guarantee, but ideally two steps ahead of the average individual when we need to make that turn so that they don't go off the cliff with the herd, with just basic trust and in, in institutions that are increasingly being deceitful in the information they're putting out. So it's our honor, Chris. It is. Well, thank you. So for anybody who wants to uh, go and, and maybe, you know, listen to have a free consultation with Paul, no obligation, talk to him, talk to him about your situation, go to peakfinancialinvesting.com and very simple form. Somebody will contact you and uh, it's a very simple process. So with that, Paul, thanks so much for this. We'll see you next week. Hopefully, hopefully it's, it's a nice calm week and, and uh, uh, things, things sort of hang together. That's what I hope. <laughs> good to see you, Chris. Always an honor. Likewise. All right. Next time. Until then. Bye-bye. Hello, Chris Martinson. I'm the CEO of Peak Prosperity and also Peak Financial Investing. And after watching that, you're probably wondering, 
well, what do I do with my money? Look, you both deserve and need somebody who can talk to you about what's really going on in this world, understand the situation as it is, not be steering you towards certain things that don't make sense for you or just keep you in a game that's already ended. Look, if you want to talk to somebody about the petrodollar declining or what is happening with gold or which sectors are actually the best ones to be in, given what the Federal Reserve is up to or the federal government, you deserve to talk to somebody who can answer those and has a few gray hairs and has been there through some of the economic cycles because, hey, we're in another economic cycle, so it's good to have that experience. Fortunately, at Peak Financial Investing, what we do is we go out and we scour and we look for the very best firms out there who satisfy one thing above all else. They've got great experience coupled to great customer service. So if you want to come by peakfinancialinvesting.com, there's a very simple form you can fill out. Just a few fields. You hit send. What happens is an email gets triggered out. It goes to uh, an endorsed firm of ours. You will get an email back. You can then set up a phone call for a 30 to 45 minute free, no obligation, no pressure call to find out if this firm is a good fit for you and to find out if you're a good fit for the firm. It has to go both ways. And if all that matches up, this will be one of the best things that could happen to you this year. So please come by peakfinancialinvesting.com. Very simple process. We would love to help you if we can. Thanks very much.